Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Diane Windingland. Diane is a professional speaker at Small Talk Big Results where she gives keynotes and motivational speeches for business organizations. She's also a speech and presentation coach at virtualspeechcoach.com. Diane is the author of several books on speaking and communications, including her most recent book, The Respect Virus, How to Create a Contagious Culture of Respect. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, what you do, how you got interested in speaking and communication? Well, sure. I was sort of a geek in high school. I was in debate, and that did help me win arguments with people, but that's not really the best way to connect by winning arguments. And after high school, I went to college and got a degree as an engineer. And I was really more concerned with my ability to calculate rather than to communicate and was not very good at chit-chat or connecting with people. But about 11 years ago, I was homeschooling my kids and my son was 14 at the time. And I thought I would love for him to be able to give a few speeches, and I knew about Toastmasters. So I brought him to a Toastmasters meeting and asked if he would be able to give a few speeches. And they said, well, he's too young to join. But if you join, we'll let him give a few speeches. So I joined Toastmasters. Are you familiar with Toastmasters at all? Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. It's a great organization to develop public speaking and leadership skills. But so I started developing an interest in speaking and communication through Toastmasters, and then in 2007, we bought a business, and it was the absolute worst time to buy the business that we bought, which was reselling IT equipment, and it pretty much just went downhill. But as part of that business and promoting it, I joined BNI, Business Networking International, and became their networking education coordinator, which was really kind of funny. But I learned a lot about networking. And then within a couple of years, the business just kept going downhill. And I was desperate to do something to earn money. So I looked at the classified ads for a job and saw an ad for a local business college that wanted to hire speakers to give classroom workshops. And so I went through their audition process, got a job, worked with them for a year, and that's an interesting group to talk to, high school students that are trapped in a classroom, but that did help me with developing speaking skills to be engaging, and about that same time, a friend suggested I look into professional speaking through the National Speakers Association, which I did, and I took a few classes from my local chapter and found out as I was doing like a spreadsheet of my experience to try to find an area that I'd want to talk about, the only thing everything I did had in common was really small talk and chit-chat. And so that's how I got started with my business, Small Talk Big Results. It was just picking something to speak about that I had some experience on. And then for presentation coaching, within a couple of years after that, I had a few people ask me to coach them. And I thought, well, I might as well just start a business doing that. You know, one of those organic ways of starting businesses, people start asking you for help doing stuff, and you think, hey, I'll just start a business doing that. 
So that's really how I got started. And what I do now is I give presentations to organizations on basically leadership communication and networking communication. And then I coach individuals on presentation skills. I have a ton of questions for you, Diane. The first question I want to ask you is actually about small talk. What are the essentials of good small talk? Well, I'd say the essentials are to listen, to learn, and to like. And what I mean by that is to listen is all too often when we're talking with people, we're just waiting for our turn to talk, and we're not really paying attention. Think about Now, you're probably better than most people, Chris, but I know I've had the challenge and other people have the challenge. You meet somebody and they tell you their name and it's like, I don't know, there's a big black hole for names and you don't even remember their name. It's just really awkward. And part of that is that we weren't paying attention. So paying attention is a big part of listening and then also to listen reflectively so that people know you're listening to them where you reflect back what they're saying and you say things like, so what you're saying is, just to let them know that you're trying to clarify, you can also ask clarifying questions. So that's the listen piece. And the learning piece really gets to learning about the person by asking questions, preferably open-ended questions, questions that can't be answered with a simple yes or no, questions or statements like, well, tell me about your work. You know, you can't answer that with a yes or no. You have to have a little bit more in there. And basically, you are learning about people, you're interested in people, and that makes you interesting to others. Then finally, like. And I don't know if you've ever read any of Nicholas Boothman's book, How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. Have you ever read any of his books? No, but I would love you to give us kind of the rundown on it. Okay, Nicholas Boothman wrote a few books on basically connecting with people quickly, which might be some things you want to look at given that you do a lot with dating and a lot of dating is at least initially connecting quickly. And he had a reporter who challenged him on his ability to connect quickly. And the reporter basically had him, Nicholas Boothman, go into a room of police officers, you know, perhaps not the friendliest, easiest to get to know bunch. And so Nicholas went in there, and, and what he did is he somewhat adjusted his own speech pattern and his own body language to match a little bit more the police officers. Like they were standing around with their arms crossed, kind of like, you know, standing on one leg, and they spoke in a little slightly more clipped sentences. So he adjusted his communication and was just in there for like 90 seconds. And then the reporter went in and asked people what they thought of Nicholas, and, and they, they liked him based on just that 90 seconds of connecting, which basically Nicholas Boothman was saying, if you want people to like you, you need to be like them, where they feel that they're connected with you and that you're part of their group, at least psychologically. So that's, that's the like thing. You want to find out what you have in common. You don't want to seem, at least initially, too different from the other person, although being different can be an attraction as well. But people, at least when they're first warming up, they warm up easiest with people who seem like them. So that would be the small talk essentials, to listen, to learn, to like, and uh, that's what I would suggest. 
Yeah, that's great. And and even that, that last part you said about people like people like them, but also being different can be attractive. It makes me think of, I'll use a specific example. Let's say somebody goes to apply for a job at a bank, for example, Goldman Sachs. Uh, it's kind of it's a conservative culture, and they come in and they have a 12 inch mohawk. That's probably too different. <laughs> They're going to attract a lot of attention, but it's probably too different within the culture in order to really connect with people. Um, so it sounds to me like you want to dress like people, talk like them. Uh, you can differentiate yourself within that tribe, um, but you want to kind of build rapport, both kind of verbally, non-verbally, in regards to the things you say. Would you agree with that? I would agree. And using your example of getting a job, when you get a job, that's when you need to seem most like the culture that you are interviewing in. But once you get that job, you have a little more freedom to express yourself and to differentiate yourself. And that would be true in relationships as well, both business and personal. Yeah, I, w I would absolutely agree. When I use that Goldman Sachs example, that's actually the example that I use from dating because I'm, I tell guys, you know, you need to dress in a way that's going to attract your target market. I figure out what type of woman that you're looking to attract and you kind of need to look like you are from the same general tribe as them. Very true. And that's true in business too, that people, although I wouldn't say it's 100% true because there are certain elements that really want something different. But by and large, being like other people will be a quick way to develop rapport. I was thinking about, uh, as you said, that Mark Zuckerberg, and when he was trying to raise money for Facebook during like some of their later rounds, and he was going around in a hoodie, and a lot of people, did, he got a lot of criticism. Now no one really says anything because he's kind of beyond that. But it's funny because early in his career, I remember him doing that. But at the same time, now more recently, he was in China, and he went and spoke in China, and while he was in China... I guess I don't know if he was speaking in Cantonese or whatever. He was speaking in one of the dialects of Chinese to the audience that the audience spoke, and they were really impressed. So it's interesting to see how far that he's come in that oh, right. process. He's learned a lot about people, I think. I think he has learned the value of connecting with people by having things in common with them. Yeah. Now, when he started speaking Chinese, the room got excited. Well, plus that is always something... If you are meeting with someone who does speak another language and you take the time to learn at least a few phrases, that shows you really care and you want to connect. And something else you talk a lot about is kind of conversation starting. Well, what are some effective icebreakers when someone first walks into a room and wants to talk to someone? Well, you know, I've never really liked the term icebreakers because when you think of ice, ice is cold, ice is hard. And it doesn't sound very appealing. So I prefer to think of it not as breaking the ice, but as melting the ice. And I think you can melt the ice by asking questions. And I do have, you know, I actually tried to figure out what I do that works and then codify it in a way, in a very simple way. And, may, and you've probably done the same thing with dating. It's like you probably had some success in dating and then you kind of back-engineered it, like, well, what did I do to have success? And then you figured it out, and you were able to teach it. So I figured out a really simple three-step process 
that many people do naturally, and they don't even think about it. But for some people, it doesn't come so naturally, and it is a method that has an acronym, O-R-A. O stands for observational comment. R stands for reveal, a personal tidbit. And A stands for ask an open-ended question. So it almost doesn't matter what you open with to break the ice when you make an observational comment. It just has to be something really that you both could observe. It could be as boring and mundane as the weather. If you're at an event, talking about something, noticing something about the event or the food, you can open with that. You can also observe something that the other person is wearing, which is easier if this is a woman speaking to a woman, a guy speaking to a woman that might be dangerous ground, or something they're using, like a cell phone. So I'll give you an example. So let's say I am at an event and I notice someone using one of those large tablet types of phones, you know, the kind that when you hold it up to your head, it looks like you're eating a sandwich practically. It's so big. So I might notice someone having that large phone, and I might say, is that the new iPhone 6 Plus? And really, they'll probably either say yes or no. So that's not exactly an open-ended question. But whatever they say, I could say, you know, I've had an iPhone for years, and I'm not sure I want to go to a big phone. Now, that's where I'm doing a little personal reveal. It's nothing really personal. It's just a little tidbit about myself. And then I could ask an open-ended question. How do you like having a big phone? And then they could tell me how they like having a big phone. So if, if you see that there, you know, is that the new iPhone 6 Plus? I'm making an observational comment on something we both can observe. And then I'm giving them just a tiny reveal. And actually, this part is optional if you can't think of a tiny reveal. You know, that I've had an iPhone for years, but I'm thinking about going to a big phone. And then the open-ended ask. How do you like having a big phone? Because then that will get them talking. And usually, you know, and that's where you have to kind of free flow it at that point. You have to hear what they say, listen to it. You can ask clarifying questions. You can ask for more details. You can take something to say and bring it off into another topic. So that technique, the ORA, observational comment, reveal a personal tidbit, and ask an open-ended question. I found to be generally successful in most situations as an icebreaker technique. I think that's absolutely awesome advice. You've mentioned now clarifying questions twice. Can you explain to the listeners what clarifying questions are? Well, sure. If somebody gives you some information and they say, you know, going back to the iPhone 6, how do you like having a big phone? And they start talking about, you know, they love being able to see movies on their phone, I might say, well, what services do you use for watching movies? And that will just clarify what they're doing and get more information at the same time. So it's a clarifying question is just to get a little more information or if you don't understand something they said. Like, for example, when you were talking earlier uh, before the podcast here, you said something about, using Stitcher and SoundCloud. I don't really know what those are. So, you know, if I'd really been interested at the time, I could have said, well, how does SoundCloud work? Is that an app you download on your phone? And that would have been a clarifying question. So clarifying questions move you deeper into the topic. 
That's right. And, and something else you said was you could shift directions as well. I forget exactly how you phrased it, but right, you can shift it to another topic, and, and that's important as well, right? Yes. In fact, this is a great technique in dating, and I just to segue into something else. When my husband and I were newly married and we had like no money, we would go to college parties and make up our own little game. And the game was my husband would pick a random person out of the crowd and then give me a random piece of information that I was supposed to get from that person without actually asking the question, like to find out the name of his maternal grandmother. And so it doesn't matter what you open the conversation with, you just open the conversation you have this like little goal in your mind and you kind of weave it around and they say something that relates to family. So then you can start talking about family and then from family you probably can move into grandparents and you could say, oh, my grandmother's name was Dorothy. You know, you know, you can kind of like weave a conversation. So if someone's talking about their iPhone and watching movies on their iPhone and I could then ask, well, what services do you use? Do you use Netflix, blah, blah, blah. And say, oh, we use Netflix. I said, oh, did you see, have you seen House of Cards? I mean, I mean, you can totally move it into different directions based on what they say. It's like social jiu-jitsu. Right, right. And sometimes it can be planned. Other times you have topics that you're naturally comfortable with. And so, like, I like watching shows on Netflix. So I, I could turn easily to that topic and you just, Grab onto something they say that's interesting to you and you can talk about and you can ask them questions on and have some back and forth. Sometimes they don't have anything to offer, so then you need to turn it back to something that they can talk about. This is such an important skill set because I think that there's a lot of guys who are listening to this, they're linear thinkers. And so they'll take a conversation in one direction and it never really veers off that direction. So eventually they run out of things to say. And so I think the skill set is just so incredibly important because it, it gives different things to talk about. Right. Also, you do get different personalities. If you have someone who is more introverted that you're speaking with, you might have to work a little harder to get them talking and to finding conversation topics that they're comfortable with talking about. So you really have to listen. If you're talking with an extrovert, it probably won't take much to get them off on another tangent. They'll just go with it. So you have to be sensitive to the other person's style of communication as well. Any tips for recognizing these styles of communication and dealing with them or working with them? Well, usually the thing I notice is that when you ask an open-ended question, introverted people will sometimes give shorter answers that will answer your question but won't go off into another area. And extroverted people, they'll answer your question and be so excited about talking that they will take it into another area. So if you're asking someone, I mean, you don't want to be like an interrogator. You want to have friendly questions and you don't want to do a question after question after question because that does feel like an interrogation. So if you you have a question, they say something, and then you can take off on that. So, like, if we're talking about movies you've seen lately, and I might, might say, you know, have you seen the movie or have you seen the previews? And either they have or they haven't. So, and if they have, you can talk about it. If they haven't, you could just say, what movies have you seen lately that you've enjoyed? And you might get someone who doesn't watch movies at all, 
And so then you can say, so what do you like to do in your spare time? And find that out and whatever it is, then you can talk about that. So maybe they like to do yoga. Now, I know nothing about yoga, and I might even admit that. I might say, you know, I don't really know much about yoga other than I'm afraid I'd make a fool of myself at a yoga class. What's a typical yoga class like? So, I mean, you can see how you could just kind of move it into different areas. And uh, an introverted person, if you're speaking with them, you may need to carry a little more of the conversation. And frankly, they may be very happy for you to do that. Because some introverted people do prefer other people talk more, and they actually enjoy that. And extroverts often prefer to do more of the talking. You started with something specific, and when you realized that it wasn't a place where people felt comfortable, you moved back to, to something general until you found something that they felt comfortable with and then moved in that direction. Right. So that's, that's a conversation technique. You know, you can... You start out with general and you try to go to a specific because people can talk in more detail about a specific. But if the line of conversation for the specific isn't working, you can go back to a general and then try another tangent. Well, what are some of the other kind of strategies that people can use to be more effective socially and as networkers? Well, specifically as networkers to be more effective is to know what you want and to network with the right crowd. I'll give you an example. I actually, the, the first book I wrote, Small Talk, Big Results, Chit Chat, Your Way to Success, was a lot about networking and conversation. And shortly after I wrote that book, I realized I was networking mostly with the wrong crowd in terms of me getting hired to speak at events. And I found that out through going to a speed networking event. Have you ever been, you've probably been to speed dating, have you ever been to a speed networking event? I understand they're very similar. Yeah, I've never been to one. Okay, but I, I understand it's very similar to speed dating. Have you, I'm assuming you've tried that. Have you ever done speed dating? Yeah, I've done a, a few different types of speed things. Actually, I have a friend of mine who wrote a book on speed shrinking, and so I, I'm not a shrink, but I was a speed shrink for her. Uh, but oh, funny. Yeah, so I've done a few things like that, yeah. Well, so I went to the speed networking event mainly just to try it out because I had never done it. And we had we were arranged so that we would shift every four minutes to talk to another person. And now I'm someone who loves to chit-chat with people, and I find everyone interesting and fascinating, and I love to get people talking about themselves. But when you only have four minutes, you don't have a lot of time to chit-chat. You kind of have to get down to business. And as I'm talking with all these various people, they tell me what they do, what they're looking for, yada, yada, yada. And I realized that, like, almost everybody at the speed networking event is a small business owner that I'm networking with. And small business owners are not going to hire me to speak to their organization. So it was very clear because I took the part I enjoyed out of the equation, which was the chit-chat and got down to the bare bones of who I was talking with and what their goals were. And I realized that most of the people that go to networking events are small business owners. And although I enjoy meeting them, and you never know where the serendipity occurs, where you may meet somebody that you hadn't anticipated meeting, but by and large, if I were to spend a lot of time going to networking events, it would not be the best use of my time. So you need to know that you're networking with the right crowd. So if you're, as a business person, if your audience is small business owners, 
then going to networking events could be very productive. Going to a biz, uh, BNI, Business Networking International, could be very productive. However, if you do business with large corporations, going to networking events is probably not the best choice. Perhaps going to trade show conferences, to uh, checking people out on LinkedIn. So first of all, know what you want and network with the right crowd. And then do your homework and have a plan, either before you go to an event or before you make initial contact with someone. You could check out their LinkedIn. Like, I checked you out on LinkedIn, Chris. We talked about that earlier and, you know, read that you're in the New York City area. You graduated from Columbia University and you have Craft of Charisma. I think you started it must have been right around when you graduated or shortly thereafter. And I checked out, you have a, a video online that you did through Martha Stewart's organization. So I, I actually checked you out a little bit to find out, you know, what you were like as a person. I went to your website. I searched on your name in quotes. I looked on YouTube. And I did all of this in about 15 minutes. So it's not like you have to do a huge amount of research. But if you're going to an event and you know who's going to be there, you can check people out. Now, you don't want to be creepy about it when you go up to them or you email them. And if you found out, like, they recently were divorced, that, that would be kind of creepy to talk about that. But if you know they recently published a book, you could at least look it up on Amazon and read the description and say, hey, I noticed you published a book. It looks really interesting. You know, why did you decide to publish that particular book? So if you've done your homework and you are knowing who you want to network, you want to have a goal. Like, if you're going to an event, and I'm sure you, you do this even with your dating clients, but if they're going to a place where they have an opportunity to meet people, they probably have goals and a, a strategy and maybe even a target that they want to talk to. And so if you have, like, for example, a target person you want to talk with, and let's say you go to an event with friends or you see a friend there, all too often the temptation is to glom onto your friends and just chat with your friends, and starting out with your friends is not a bad idea. It kind of gives you a warm-up, and then you want to move on to your target person without spending the whole night just talking to your friends. And then finally, you want to follow up with people. After you've had the conversation where you've listened, you've learned about them, uh, they can see how you're alike. Maybe you offered something like an information or a connection, things that aren't necessarily self-serving or an idea for something. Follow up with the person. Touch base with them. And then you can decide if you want to move it further as a relationship. So to be an effective networker, you have to know what you want and also find out what other people want and have a plan. Diane, you have some wonderful ideas here, and they are very applicable to dating. And I just want to comment on a few of them. You mentioned environment, and I think that's so important. If you're a guy out there and you don't drink, for example, meeting girls in bars is probably not that smart of a strategy because a lot of the people who are there drink. And that doesn't mean that it, you, went, you go to some event and everybody goes to a bar afterwards and hangs out for a little bit um, just to have some more time together doesn't mean that's a, a bad strategy. It doesn't mean that you might not meet somebody in a bar. It's just that you want to think about what are the things that you're interested in. So if you're really into health, then you're probably better off meeting somebody at your gym or in a running group, uh, training for a marathon, something where 
you are going to find the type of people that are into the things that you're interested in. You're totally correct. I would say you'd want to focus. Now, the percentages could vary. But say 80% of your time with groups that would align with what you want out of life. And maybe 20% other groups because you never know. Variety is the spice of life. I met my husband when I was 17, and we were both at a beer keg party, which is really funny because neither of us drink beer. We still don't drink beer. And as it would turn out, the two people at the party who didn't drink beer ended up talking together. So I would not have thought that I was the kind of person that would have met my husband at a beer keg party. But I went just to do something different, and you just never know. But you don't want to focus your time on places that are unlikely to have the type of people that you'd want to forge a connection with. The other day, I had to give a talk, and this is probably not the best example, but I'm going to use it anyway. Or somebody asked me about approaching women in the street. In New York City, that's something that people do because there's just so many people. You're walking, you're in the subway, you're at the bank, you see someone you're attracted to. And there's a lot of men who do this in New York City very ineffectively. And there's been some YouTube videos and some national media about how ineffective they are at it. But I was explaining to somebody, the only problem with, one of the problems with approaching people on the street is it's a lot like duck hunting or even in a barge to an extent. Like you shoot and you're going to, you shoot at a flock of ducks coming by. You're going to hit a couple ducks, but they might not be the ducks you want. <laughs> so right, right. Um, so I, I agree. I think it's really important to have an open mind. Uh, you can meet somebody in any situation. But if you're really looking for something specific, you want to play the percentages. So that, that's an incredibly important point. Another thing you talked a little bit about was learning about somebody. And I just want to make a couple of comments on that. If you're learning about somebody, you learn about somebody before you walk into an event, one thing that is very important is that you let the relationship evolve organically. And so I generally don't make this mistake. I was doing a podcast with somebody where I read their book and I had commented on a couple of things that I knew and I, I could tell, I could hear in their voice that it was slightly off-putting because it didn't grow organically. Even though it was public information, it was in their book, I would have been better off asking a question related to that, kind of playing dumb and letting it grow organically so that the relationship would have been on the same level. Well, that's a big advantage. If you have information, you can then, so, and if it's information you'd like to talk about with a person, you can actually have questions that would lead the person, as you say, organically to talk about that. And then you can even casually mention, oh, yes, I remember reading that in your book. Like, all of a sudden, remember, you know? That's absolutely Awesome. And it, I thought it was something that was worth mentioning because you'll make somebody feel uncomfortable if you kind of come out too much as a fan. Right. Although I'd say that that's less risky in a business situation than it is For in sure. a dating situation. Because with business, people expect that you will do some homework and that you will know something about them. And that's not too weird as long as the information isn't really personal information. If it's business public information, I think most people, if you mention something that you read in a book, will be very flattered that that you remembered it and you actually took the time to read the book. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, 
listen to this entire podcast, and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I'm thinking of two specific stories. When I met my girlfriend, I had gone on a couple of dates, uh, kind of back to back, basically. I'm mean, not the same day, but like a day apart. And I met two really great girls, and one of them was my girlfriend. And I, I didn't tell neither of them what I did because there's just so much media on me. I wanted the relationships to grow organically. So I was just like, oh, I just run workshops and do communication stuff and and eventually, like, I had to tell them my last name, and they were able to Google and read about me in <laughs> the New York Times and see me on Martha Stewart and kind of see a lot of this stuff. But one girl, once she did that, she got so excited that the next time I saw her, she was so excited. Her body language had changed. Like, she liked me, but her body language had changed. Like, she was so excited to be on the date with me. It, it, it freaked me out and <laughs> a little bit made me yeah. feel uncomfortable. And my girlfriend did the same thing. She, I mean, later on, I realized that she had read every article I wrote, read every media piece. She did so much research, but it came out through the course of the relationship. It wasn't all at once. And so right. I was like, oh, like I, at some point I just realized, okay, she knows everything that there is publicly about me. And it didn't bother me. But the first girl, it just started coming out so fast that I was like, whoa, this is not balanced. Like, I don't still don't know. Like, very much. like she had a, like she'd done a dossier on you almost. And, and they, and they both had. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they both had, but it, it's something that's kind of, I, I thought it was worth mentioning. Well, you know, Chris, you, you bring up another good point because people can Google you. Now, some names are easier to Google than others. Like, there's no other Diane Windingland in the world that I'm aware of. So if someone puts it in quotes, they'll get, like, everything that's online about me. And you want to be careful what you have online, knowing that people can Google you. And for business relationships as well as personal relationships, you know, if you go to someone's Facebook and, you know, they're chugging beer on a picture and, and that doesn't really interest you or you're a prospective employer... And you're like, well, that does not show good judgment to put that on Facebook and have it public. So you have to you have to consider what people will find in it. If you haven't Googled yourself, you should. And I know you have, but maybe some of your listeners haven't. You know, put your name in quotes and see what comes up. See what images come up. And the images sometimes, like, have nothing to do with you. And I don't know how they get connected. And what articles come up, like the first two pages of stuff. And just so you know what other people might find out about you. I think it's a great point. And I would say like the exception if the first picture of you is uh drinking a beer is if you're a brewer. <laughs> but, then, well, but, you know, a, but basically, no, yeah. I, I think it's an important point to think about 
what it is that you're communicating online. I'll never forget, I, I had an intern and he had got invited of all places by somebody to a, a porn convention in Vegas. And so, oh and so he goes to this convention and some reporter starts interviewing him. So he randomly got invited to some convention and he does this interview. And so the, the guy has is a ghost online. So now the only thing that pops up is this porn interview. And the reason why he was there was because the guy who invited him needed help at his booth, which was related to 3D technology. They were trying to sell 3D technology to different industries. And one of them was the adult entertainment industry. So he was there for, for no other, for like a completely different other reason. Um, not because he was there as a fan, but now that's the only thing that pops up under his name. <laughs> Oh my goodness! He he should probably do a lot more on social media. <laughs> you know, let's like let's bury that one with some other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going away. But I thought it's kind of a silly. I mean, I think it's a silly story. I don't think it's a silly for him. But um, well, he. I mean, it was like an unintended consequence of helping his friend. You know. Yeah. No. It's. But, but it made it made me think of that. Something else that you talked about was reaching a target person and. What I did want to mention was that 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 is definitely an art. In, in our classes, we talk about three different types of intelligence. Uh, general intelligence, which I kind of define as your ability to be productive in a given environment. So if you are in a math class and you're good at math, then that has a lot of value. Or if you are hiking through the wilderness and trying to go camping for a couple of weeks in the, in the wilderness and you know how to live off berries and set up tents and start a fire, that's you have high intelligence in that environment. So your ability to be productive in a given environment. Um, we also talk about emotional intelligence, which we define for the purposes of our classes of knowing when to push forward and when to pull back. And that's true whether you're on a date or you're with an investor uh, trying to raise money for a startup. And the last thing we talk about is social intelligence and the ability to navigate a room. So if there is a, a person, whether they're a potential boss or someone to invest in a startup or an important contact or for the guys who've seen a woman that you're attracted to, how do you get to that person in a way that's organic and how do you navigate that room? Sometimes you do it directly by just walking up to them. Other times you talk to other people in the room and work your way over uh, or you build a relationship with one of their friends. Um, but I think that's just such an important concept to mention. Oh, yeah. And it takes a lot of observation skills. And I think that is something I've noticed. I've noticed this more with young men than any other group, is that they don't observe the social nuances of, like, who is talking to whom and, you know, what some types of body language means. For example, and I'm sure you talk about this when you're going into a room that a lot of people, like a social or networking gathering, and you have two people that are squared off toward each other, you know, face to face, and they're talking, that is a closed conversation, and that's not one you really want to try to break into. However, if they're standing at a little bit of an angle to each other and they're not squared off, that's a little more of an open conversation where they may be receptive to someone joining the conversation. And that just completely goes over the head of some people to notice those kinds of things. You're right. This came up the other day in workshop and we were talking about feet and I'm like, feet tell the tale. Where if someone's feet's directed? So if, if there's three people and their feet are directed towards the center, it's a closed conversation or two people's feet are uh, pointed directly at each other. 
um, then it's a closed conversation. But if there's a group of three or four people and one person's feet are drifting away from the group, it means that even though they might still be facing the rest of the people, it means that what they value right now is what's happening in the rest of the room. That's where they want their attention to go. Right. Or, or they're, they're open to having someone else join the conversation. Absolutely. All right. Do you have any other kind of tips or strategies that are similar to that? Well, I, okay. So let's say you have, this works with maybe a group of three or so people who are talking. And let's say your target is in that group or you just would like to meet some of the people in the group. I might actually sort of like walk by or, or linger a little bit just so I can hear what they're talking about. And if it's something that is really interesting or something I might be able to contribute to and it's not a closed conversation, I, I will just simply ask, hey, I heard you talking about such and such. Do you mind if I join you? You know, it's like a very upfront approach. And I have never had anyone say no. You just, you know, you just ask if you may join them. If you, if you don't want to, you could kind of linger and try to catch the eye of somebody first. But I just prefer going straight in and asking if I can join the group. And then I don't try to overtake the conversation. I will just listen for a little bit more and then offer a few comments so that I don't seem like I'm just wanting to, you know, have an audience but I really want to hear what other people have to say. It kind of falls into your observe, reveal, ask, right? So you're in that case, you're just, you're making an observation, then asking, and then you're, once you enter the group, then you are going into that, the full process of kind of observe, reveal, ask. Yeah, but most, most groups are open to having someone else join, unless it's a very personal conversation. You know, if they're at a social event or at a networking event, the idea is to be social in the network. So they're usually open to having other people join in. I, I agree with that. Even from a dating perspective, I was, I remember I was out with a guy who coached for us a while back and there was a group of girls and he got nervous because there's this kind of myth in the dating world where you have to approach people immediately or there's some type of social consequences. It's stupid. But I told him, I was like, oh, that stuff is just BS. And uh, he got started getting nervous as more time went by because he started getting more anxiety. And so I said, well, watch. And I walked up and I started talking to these girls. And then I brought the entire group over. And, and pretty soon the two groups were mixing and chatting. And at one point I asked one of the girls, I said, did you want me to come over? Or did you want to talk to somebody? And she goes, yeah. She, she goes, I'm visiting with my sisters. But if we wanted to just talk by ourselves, we would have stayed at home and got a bottle of wine and sat by the fire. It was winter right. time. And she goes, we didn't get dressed up and come out in the cold to like a public place because we didn't want to meet people. Obviously, we want to meet the right people. But yeah, we came out because we wanted to meet people. So I think that's an important point. I know you also talk a lot about storytelling and a lot of people struggle with this. What are some strategies that people can use to improve their storytelling skills? Well, you know, people love a good story. And the best thing about stories, aside from people loving them, is that stories do make you more memorable. People will remember someone who told a good story, and if you have a message to get across, your message will be more memorable if you wrap it in a story. And there's a psychologist, psychologist Joan Jerome Bruner, and he said that a fact wrapped in story is 22 times more memorable. So in business, facts are the bones 
and stories are the skin and flesh. And in my book, Small Talk, Big Results, I do have a very short chapter, in fact, the whole book is really short, with some tips on storytelling. And I would say the number one thing, what do you think the number one thing is to have an engaging story, Chris? Just take a guess. I'm going to guess probably details. Either that or relating to your audience. Well, you want to tell a story that's relevant to whatever being talked about. I mean, if you come out with some story out of the blue, but that said, if you have some stories that you're good at telling and you think about, so what topic would this story relate to, then when that topic comes up, it could be a natural segue to the story. But the number one thing that makes a story interesting is conflict. If you want people to be interested in a story, if you're just narrating, well, I did this and I did that, na 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 na, people, it's like, so what? But if you tell a story where there is a problem to be overcome, where there's a challenge, that piques people's interest. You know, I mean, you can even, I'm sure you have guys tell dating stories and if they tell it in a way, you know, I, there was this gal at a bar and I said hello. And then she looked at me like she wished I were dead. I want to listen more to that story, like what's going to happen next kind of thing. So you do need a little bit of context because sometimes people have these non-sequitur stories that you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Or they don't give you the context of the story, a little bit about the setting, a little bit about the character, a little bit about the situation, but not too much because you do want to get to the conflict quickly. And the other point I would have for telling stories that a lot of people don't do, but it can make a story very exciting, is to have some dialogue and not just narration. For example, if I were to say, you know, this was a few years ago, and what had happened is I backed into my husband's car when it was in the driveway, so I walked into the house, told my husband I just backed my car into his car, he raced up to the driveway to look and was not happy that we would pay two deductibles. Now, I just narrated a story. And if I were to tell the story in person, now I can't really quite do this on an audio, but I will do it like I'm describing a movie for the visually impaired. So if I tell that story and, you know, I have sort of a shrinking posture and I have mincing steps, and I say, I walked back into the house and said to my husband, and then I turn like maybe a 45-degree angle as if I'm talking to my husband, honey, I can't believe it. I just backed my car into your car. And then I might pause, turn another the other 45 degrees, and, and act as if my husband is responding. You what? And then he raced up to the driveway, and I'd like make motions and, you know, have my hands spread out with the bear on my face, as my husband might have had, now we have to pay two deductibles. So I don't know if you can see that difference on an audio, but if you use dialogue and kind of act out a story a little bit, it's much more engaging than if you just narrate it. And you've probably noticed that in people, when you listen to people who really tell good stories, they're kind of acting it out and they're giving dialogue and they're, they're adding some drama to it. And you think about everything from Facebook posts to the TV shows that we watch or movies, they all use conflict very, very well. And uh, 
there's a few things I was thinking of as you were going. One was when I was thinking of conflict, I was thinking of um, kind of more extreme conflict, but the conflict needs to be right for the environment. I think that's one thing that's kind of really important. The other things you mentioned are, are great. Something else I thought about too, and this is kind of silly. I, I was uh, running a workshop the other day and I asked the guys to tell two stories. This is such an important skill for the guys who are listening to this. I had two guys tell stories and I knew what was going to happen. I never know exactly how it's going to play out, but I always know it's, it's going to happen early in the classes. And one guy told a story about how he was in Spain and he was on the train and there were some gypsies. He was with his buddy. And later on, or when they're getting off their train and later at their hotel, they realized that they had been robbed and someone had stolen the wallet. And the guy had freaked out, called, canceled all the cards. And then they'd sold the, stole the money. I'd put the wallet back into his bag and he found his wallet in his bag. And he was talking about how cool it was. And I said, well, the story had conflict and it was sort of interesting. I'm like, but the Basically, like what I'm hearing is that somebody robbed you and not only did they trick you and steal all your money, they tricked you into thinking it was cool. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> and, is and, funny. And, and, and there was that one. And the, the second story a guy told was, it started off by with a question. He had asked me a question. He said, what do I say if a girl says I would never get in that situation? And I said, what do you mean? What is your story? And he told me the story and the story was how he had gone to an event for because he wanted to take a salsa class and he had found the salsa class online and showed up and it was all people in their 70s and 80s the way that he told the story he he asked the girls what would you do in that situation the girls looked at him and said um i would never get in that situation but the way he communicated the story i'm like it sounds like you were just upset because you uh, went there and you're expecting to maybe meet pretty girls and there weren't any and he's like yeah and i was like well <laughs> that that's not what you want to communicate well, you know, it's also very interesting to me what the girl said. And to me, what she said would be the number one thing I would totally not be interested in developing a relationship with her because she was very judgmental and arrogant. And she did not show empathy. And it's like, wow, he found out right there she's not the one for him. Really. How people react. I would agree with you. The challenge is that people have, especially when they're younger, and this guy's in his mid twenties is a lot of people have a lot of anxieties and these anxieties manifest in different ways. And in this case, part of her anxiety was about she's self-conscious, she's insecure, and she's nervous about who she's seen or what environment she's seen in. And you're right, that's not like a, a great quality for uh, a potential mate, but it is something that the guys who are listening to this have to navigate. Because right, it's something right. that, that comes up. But I, I know I'm a, I'm a little bit older, so I probably am putting my I'm putting a lens of maturity on what people say. Yeah, you're you're 100 right. I had another situation, and I want to get back to some of these other questions. But I had another situation where I, I had a guy who was working in the office, and he was an intern over the summer. And there's a really pretty girl who kind of lives in my building, and so she had come over for something, and he came in. He's like, oh, she's amazing. I'm like, you are not talking to that girl. She's insane. And I gave the reasons why that I thought she was insane. And uh, and he goes, I don't care. And I said, like, it's important. You want to find girls who are healthy. And in his case, we, we talked about it. And I said, you know what? The, the, the truth is that you just don't have any options right now. We're going to help you get some options. And once you have a few options, suddenly how healthy somebody is going to become a much more important quality than it might be right now. <laughs> but right. It, it's, it's what you're talking about looking through 
the lens of maturity. But uh, I know something else you talk about is dealing with difficult people. What are some tips that you suggest if um, someone's out there networking, talking to people, socializing, and they come across somebody who's difficult? Well, in first meetings, you often don't see difficult aspects of people, but that usually comes later. You know, because people are usually on a, a pretty good behavior when they're first meeting people. But there are people, once you get to know them, or even certain situations come up like, you know, things you never planned for. I find it very helpful to have a general method that works in most cases so that when you encounter a difficult person, you have a go-to method. And not all methods work in all cases. But one method that I have found that works generally with people was a method with an acronym LEAP, L-E-A-P. And ironically, this is a method that was pioneered by Dr. Xavier Amador, who worked with people who have schizophrenia. And it was helping the people who live with and work with those people deal with them. And his method works with people who don't have mental health issues. And basically what LEAP is, is moving beyond the barrier of the difficult situation. And the LEAP stands for, the L stands for to listen reflectively, which I think I already mentioned, uh, where you would restate, reflect, ask clarifying questions. Then you would empathize. You know, I could imagine how you would feel or I've had a similar situation. And the A is to agree because no one can really argue with you when you're agreeing with them. You can agree on what you have in common, uh, what's important to both of you, and you can even agree on what the problem actually is to get clarity on the problem. And then P stands for partnering together. So it's not you versus me, it's we versus the problem. And I found that this works in social relationships, business relationships, when my kids were teenagers, it worked. I'll give you an example. I homeschooled my kids, and when my son was about 18, he and I had an adversarial relationship where everything he did was like the opposite of what I wanted him to do, and he just, I just wanted to tear my hair out. And he started avoiding me where he would like sleep during the day and be up at night just so he wouldn't have to interact with me. And I realized that I was being pushy and controlling. And I had just read about this leap method, and I thought, I'm going to give this a shot. So my, my, I caught my son at a time that was in a, a neutral mood, and I said, you know, Sean, we've been kind of at each other's throats for a while, and I have to let you know that I've just been way too controlling. Can you tell me, you know, what you feel about how we're interacting? And I listened to him. And as I was listening, I didn't jump in to argue with him, as would have been my natural tendency. But instead, I empathized with him. And I said, you know, I remember when I was a teenager and my dad would, you know, lecture me on stuff and try to get me to do things his way. And it just made me want to close off and to get away. I can understand how you would feel. And it was like, like if you have a balloon full of tension that balloon just deflated. I could see it in my son's posture. And then we talked about things we could agree on, about what was important in terms of 
preparing for the future and what the problem was that he wasn't getting through his schoolwork so that he could prepare for the future because he agreed that it was important to do so. And then we partnered together. It wasn't me telling him what to do, but we worked together to come up with a solution to work on the common goal. And it was so much more productive than me just trying to butt heads with him to actually listen, empathize, agree, and then partner. That particular sequence worked great. It also works great when you're moving beyond the initial networking conversation or the initial situation and you want to move the conversation to a deeper level. And I think particularly if you have a product or a service that you're selling, you know, to really listen to people, to listen for their pain, to what they need, to empathize, and to see, you know, what is it that's important that you both can agree on and what the problem is and then how you can work together. So that particular technique, LEAP, L-E-A-P, listen, agree, excuse me, listen, empathize, agree, and partner, is something I found it's a good go-to method if you are surprised with someone who's a difficult person. Even works at the grocery store when, you know, someone, you have a, a cashier that is just having a bad day, to not be haughty with them, but to be kind and listen and, and go through that process. It just takes, takes the tension level way down and people are much more willing to open up when they think you're not judgmental and controlling. Yeah, it's true because this happens in so many areas of our, our lives. Like, um, I think of even getting a, a speeding ticket. Although as oftentimes if somebody's listening to this or myself, you get pulled around the police and you're like, why are you stopping me? Most of the time people are just trying to do their jobs. Right. So understanding that, or sometimes I have to take guys out to bars or clubs and they get frustrated by the bouncers and they're just doing their job. And so like, if they're telling you not to stand in this section, it was because that's what their boss is telling them to do. And if they don't do it, they're going to get in trouble. So they're just trying to keep their job. I've actually gotten out of a few speeding tickets by trying to keep the other person's perspective in mind. And I've been stopped and I'm saying, you know, was I speeding? I mean, I was like, I'll just be right up front with it. Was I speeding? And, and then they'll say, yes. And I thought, how fast was I going? And then I, I might offer an explanation. Like at Christmas time, I was listening to Christmas music and I was really happy and it made me go a little too fast, I guess. <laughs> and so they were giving me warning. That strategy you just kind of talked about would also be really effective in relationships if you're having conflict, not only with your kids, but if you're conflicts with your girlfriend or boyfriend, that strategy could be really effective. I know you also talked about leadership and leadership is really important here because oftentimes, especially with the guys you're listening, they end up just the way dynamics of relationships work. They have to learn to not only lead themselves, but kind of oftentimes lead a relationship uh, to a certain extent. So I'm wondering if you could talk about some important qualities of being an effective leader. Well, I would say that the underlying non-negotiable quality would be integrity. And that's basically when your behavior is congruent with your values, where you walk the talk. And because if you don't have that, you can apply a lot of techniques of leadership on top of shaky integrity, and it'll all just come down eventually. So integrity, being who you are at all times and acting out your values is the number one thing. And I speak on four qualities of leadership communication. There's lots of qualities of leadership. But the one that I speak on, I call the four E's of an excellent leader, and that would be having positive expectations, 
having encouragement, uh, empowerment, and of course, empathy. And for positive expectations, there's been tons of studies that have shown that when you think positively about what you expect, people will give you what you expect. And there was a study done way many years ago with some like Air Force Academy airmen where there were five math classes that were divided among, you know, five different teachers and the teachers were told either that their students had unusually high ability or unusually low ability. And at the end of the year, no surprise, the students of unusually high ability much outperformed those of low ability. But the surprise was that the students had been randomly assigned to the classes. And it was the teacher's expectations that somehow got communicated that resulted in poor or better performance. So positive expectations, you know, to go into a situation where you expect positive things and then to communicate with encouragement. There's not enough of encouragement for adults. People are pretty good at encouraging kids, but simply showing appreciation, you know, saying thank you, but also being specific in your thank you, like thank you for taking the time to do this. It made a difference because, and then give a reason. And communicating with empowerment. And empowerment basically means that you help people help themselves. And there's two, you can't do everything for everybody but you can help them get started and you can be there for them. You know, you can champion them if they're the underdog and to help them find their own power. But I would say the most important thing, the most important quality aside from integrity is probably to communicate with empathy because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's where if you're in a situation, even if it's not conflict, that leap process can just take you to a deeper place and create a sense of loyalty, that you're someone who listens, you're someone who cares, you're someone who works on mutually beneficial win-win solutions. So those would be some of the qualities I'd focus on. Uh, absolutely awesome. Any kind of last tips, suggestions on how people can be kind of more effective communicators? Well, I would say... Don't be afraid of being a little bit vulnerable. Now, I don't mean to, like, spill your guts about your whole life history. But if you're willing to be a little bit vulnerable, people will trust you more, and they'll be more likely to want to open up. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, my husband and I went to a bankruptcy and just had a horrible time with this business that didn't go so well. And then after things got better, I ended up having coffee with a guy, and we were talking about a, a mutual interest. And he was telling me he'd been divorced, he was getting his food from the food shelf, and I could just see that, that wall, invisible shield go up where he realized maybe he was oversharing and I was going to be judgmental. And so I strategically decided to be a little vulnerable, and I said, you know, hey, Matt, I know what it's like. A couple years ago, not only did I get my food from the food shelf, we got our kids' Christmas gifts there, too. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. And then the shield went down, and he, like, leaned into the conversation. And by being a little vulnerable with him, he felt that he could trust me. And that kind of brought the relationship to another level. And that said, you don't want to overdo being vulnerable. But a little bit of vulnerability will draw people in and have them trust you more. 
Uh, I'm going to wrap this up. If you're listening, you want to learn more about Diane. She's got a ton of books, confidence, public speaking, communication, socializing. And we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about her more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Chris. I've enjoyed it. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.